I got a little nervous. I, Gary gave me a, a bulletin and it said that the invitation was just as I am. So I thought we were done, Gary. I, I thought we just skipped, uh, skipped my part. It was going to be a quick service. Uh, but uh, it's great to be here. Thank you guys for allowing me to come and, and minister and to serve with you tonight and your uh, Monday night uh, live. I, I love that. I love that name. Uh, I, I'm, just, I'm a wrestler at heart. Basically, that's what I am. I wrestled in high school and college and I uh, got to wrestle internationally some with the USA team uh, back in the 80s, and so it's, it's still a part of who I am. Uh, I love the sport, and I love my Monday Night Live. It makes me think we're going to go outside somewhere. There's going to be a, a, you know, like a, a circle or a ring, or we're going to get after it. So uh, the problem is I'd last about 15 seconds. But anyway, that's all right. Uh, those things happen. Uh, it's great to be with Gary and his family. Uh, it's just ama amazing uh, to think that our kids grow up as fast as they do. And I know all of, all of Gary's, uh, they're not kids anymore, they're adults, uh, and, and mine are quickly getting there, so it's, it's pretty amazing. What, what's amazing about all of that, though, Gary, is that Becky hasn't changed at all. I mean, that, that, that's what's amazing, is that all of these years, you and I have changed a little bit, not much. We're a little heavier, but not much heavier than we used to be, right? But, uh, but Becky hasn't at all, so it's, it's so great to be with you guys. And we both had the privilege of serving with uh, Dr. Nat Grenade at Shirley Hills Baptist Church, which was such a joy. Uh, and we, we enjoyed that time so much in our ministry, uh, we did, that our, our third son, uh, his middle name is actually Grenade, after uh, Brother Nap Grenade. So love that family and uh, continue to pray for them. Well, as, as we're talking about family, let me tell you a little bit about my family. I do have three kids. Uh, my, my, and again, they're not kids, they're, they're adults. Uh, they're, they're getting there, at least they think they're adults. Uh, most of them do. Uh, my oldest son is named Cole. And uh, Cole and Aaron kind of hung out together and uh, got in trouble together some. No, Celia. Celia. It was, it was Celia, right? Celia. Uh, called 911 once and all that kind of fun stuff. So, uh, but Cole's 25, and uh, he's actually living out on his own now. And uh, uh, Cole is, how many of you guys, if you have multiple children, how many of you all have a drama child? Like, how many of you all have a child that you know that you just kind of zero in and go, if there's drama in the family, it's going to come here, Right? Well, it's not my daughter, it's my oldest son. My oldest son is my drama child. So if there's drama in our family, whatever's going to happen, it's going to come from Cole. It's pretty amazing how that turned out. But Cole's doing great. Uh, we moved to Nashville, Cole's senior year of high school, and he, and he had a difficult time transitioning uh, to Nashville, moving there his senior year. Went through a couple of rough years, and Julie and I had to, had to intervene, uh, do some stuff with him. But man, the Lord has just really turned his life around, and he's doing great now. He's actually getting married in May. And he's marrying a very beautiful Greek lady named Christina. And uh, he's finding out what it looks like to plan a Greek wedding. Now, here's what he's finding out about that. He doesn't have anything to do with it. He, that's what he's finding out. He's finding out he doesn't need to even go to a meeting. They got it. And so he calls me all the time, Dad, I got a question. And uh, so we, we get to talk a lot through that. But Cole's doing great. My daughter Madison's 22. She just graduated from Cumberland University in Lebanon, Tennessee, and uh, she was a cheerleader in college. And uh, what, what's crazy about my three kids is that my daughter is the most driven of the three. And if I've got a gym rat, it's my daughter. It wasn't my, either one of my boys, it was my daughter. My daughter was the one who loves the gym, loves to work out her degrees in exercise science and human performance. And she's actually training for a fitness competition right now. And she just, she just loves to work out, which I think is awesome. Now I wish my boys would have gotten some of that, uh, but, but my daughter did, and, and she does a great job of that. Now, my youngest son is Alec. He's 18 years old. Got to tell you a little story about Alec. About two years ago, 
uh, Alec, we noticed that his feet, Alec, Alec's a little taller. Alec is the, the son for us because, you know, my, I'm not the tallest guy in the world. If you didn't, probably didn't notice that, but I'm not. Um, but Alec is six foot two, about 225, big, big boy. And uh, so we, we, you know, people wanted us to do the test and make sure, it, but, you know, he's, he's mine. He looks like me. So um, thankfully, thankfully he looks like me because he's, he, he, he's tall. Well, one day after football was over with his sophomore year, Alec came to me and said, Dad, my feet are really hurting. And so we uh, began to look at his feet, and we had noticed that as he was growing that his feet were, were kind of curling a little bit. Uh, finally, took, we took him to a podiatrist. In January of his sophomore year, uh, he wrestled for me for two years. January of his sophomore year, Alec had rigid hammer toe surgery on all 10 of his toes. All 10 of his toes. So he had, he had pins at the ends of every one of his toes. He had two pins in his big toes, and he went to school that way. So he wore these huge open sandals, and he went to school that way to basically straighten out. The doctor told us that his toes on his left foot have never touched the ground. And the older he got, the tendons were too short on top of his feet, so the older he got, the more they drew back. And, and really, they, they couldn't do anything until his feet were finished growing. So, so he had that his sophomore year, went on to have a great junior and senior year of high school in football. Uh, he and I spent last summer all last summer traveling around to schools that were recruiting him for football. And we just had a great, great time together. And uh, he, he decided, actually decided not to play football uh, in college, but we just, just had such a great time. But he, he's my level-headed, kind of whatever comes his way, it's all good, nothing's gonna upset him, he's not gonna get real high, not gonna get real low. And again, he was the one, because he's really probably the most athletic of my three, that I wanted him to be a little more, come on, Alec, you gotta get after it. You know, he wrestled for me uh, for, uh, for two seasons. And I was never so thankful when he came to me one day and said, Dad, I don't think I want to wrestle. And I was like, oh, thank God. Oh, I mean, oh, really? Come on. But it just, it just wasn't his sport. He just never connected with it. He never, he never got into it. He would just kind of go out there and kind of do what he did. I'm like, okay, I'll, you know. It's just, it's just the way he's wired. But here's what's amazing about me watching uh, my three young people grow up is their views of independence. Now, now here's what's funny about that, because it, it, all, of, all three of my children have a different view of what it means to be independent. Now, my oldest son is in this phase right now where he's what I call, he's, he's in the phase of proving independence. So Cole, now that he's got a job and he's doing pretty well, he wants to pay for everything. So when we go out to eat, Cole's like, Dad, I got this, I got this, I got this. If we go anywhere, I mean, Cole's in that, in that mode where he wants to prove to me, Dad, I'm independent, I've got this, I can take care of myself. Now, my daughter, who just graduated from college, 22 years old, she moved back into the house as she's kind of getting established. Madison has what I call partial independence. Now, here's her, here's her view. Her view is, I've got a job, but I'm going to pay for only the things I want to pay for. Man, isn't that convenient? That's awesome. So when it comes to gas and things like that, just the other day, well, on my way here, she sent me a text, hey, Dad, filled up the car with gas. What that means is, will you put that money into my I know what that means. And so I said, great, glad you did that. Sent a text back, that's not what I'm talking about. Partial independence. 
Now, my youngest son, Alec, has what I call proclaimed independence. Alec's getting ready to go to University of Tennessee at Chattanooga August 7th. August 7th, we'll drive him down there, set up his room. And uh, it's funny because, you know, he's our third and, 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 our, and, and our last. And so, you know, with the first one, when Cole went to school, we went down there, set up his room. We cried. It was horrible. Madison didn't go very far. Alec, we're going to drop him off at Chattanooga, and we're headed to Hilton Head. So, you know, it just kind of happens that way, right? It just kind of fades on down. Alec proclaimed to me the other day, he said, Now, Dad, you know that when you drop me off at college August 7th, I'm going to be on my own. I said, Really? I said, Man, that's great. How are you going to pay your tuition? Well, I don't mean that. I'm not talking, I'm just talking about I'm going to be on my own. So he proclaimed to me that he is independent now even though he doesn't understand the context of what that means. What, the part that he missed was, was to say, Dad, I'm going to be on my own, and if it hadn't been for you and Mom, there's no way that I could be here. And he'll learn, he'll learn that. He, he knows that, but they all want to be independent. Here's what's amazing as I think about that with us in the context of our Christian life, is that so many of us view our freedom or our independence with Christ the very same way. Think about this with me for a second. How many of us, I wonder, have what I would call proving independence? Lord, we're free, and I'm going to prove it to you that I am. And so we're going to work our way. We're going to make sure that we prove to God that we can pay him back for what he's done for me. So we're going to make sure we give. We're going to make sure we go. We're going to make sure we serve. We're going to make sure we do all the right things because we have to prove to God that we really do deserve the freedom that we have. You know, some people in the Christian life have what I would call partial independence. And those people are the ones that, that they want to be independent, but here's, the, here's what they want to be independent from. They want to be independent from going to hell, but that's really about all. You see, they want to pick and choose what they want to be free from. So they don't want to be free, they just want to be free from going to hell when they die. And we know that creates a sense or a style of life that many live. And then there's this proclaimed independence where there are a few people, there are a handful of people I'm learning that, that actually get it right. That they're able to proclaim to God that, Father, I am free, I am enjoying freedom. And they get the second part that my youngest son hasn't got just yet, where they're able to say, I am free, but I am free because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's only because of that that I'm free. You see, I see a lot of people, and you do too, that, that are in churches today that say they're free and they're really living in bondage. So many people in our churches today are still in religious bondage. Because we feel like we are obligated to prove to God that we deserve to be saved. And so we serve, we give, but we do it out of obligation. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Is obligatory freedom really freedom? Is that really what it means to be free? Jesus teaches on this in John chapter 8. So if you've got your Bible, let's go ahead and turn there. And I want to walk through just this, this story with you pretty quickly about what Jesus did as he begins to dismantle the Jews' view of what freedom really was. Because as he's speaking to this group, this group really thought they understood freedom. The reality is, is that they didn't even have a clue what it meant to be free and Jesus does such a great job of walking through and kind of dismantling their argument 
to help us kind of as the bystanders look into the Word of God and see what it means, see what he's teaching about, what it really means to be free. So John chapter 8, a familiar passage of Scripture. What's interesting about this story is that Jesus in John chapter 8, he begins the chapter, he begins this, this part of his ministry by setting a woman free. Now the woman that came to Christ, the woman that was brought to Christ was the woman caught in adultery. And we know, and what's amazing about when you read Scripture in context is you read why Jesus teaches on what he does based on what has just happened. So he's going to teach on freedom because he had just set somebody free. And the Pharisees and the religious people didn't get it. So they bring this woman caught in adultery to Jesus. And here's, here's what's amazing about this picture. This is freedom. They bring this woman to Jesus and she was guilty. No question about it, she was guilty. No question about it that she deserved to die. That was the law. She deserved to die. She was guilty. She deserved to die. But what did Jesus do? Jesus looked at her and said, ma'am, where are your accusers? And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So he sets this woman free. He, Jesus demonstrates exactly what the gospel is going to become to all of us. He demonstrates the gospel. And then the Pharisees and the Jews get uptight about it because they said, this can't be right. She didn't deserve to be set free because that was their mentality. And then Jesus goes on, talks about him being the light of the world. He predicts his departure. Then he comes down and he looks at the people who are there. Now the scriptures say something interesting. It says that many Jews actually believed. Look at verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. So obviously there were people around that were watching what was going on. They were listening to what Jesus was saying. They were watching what he was doing with this woman who was caught in adultery. And because of that, they believed. Now they believed something. The scriptures say they believed. So Jesus now looks to this same crowd and he says to them who had believed. Now watch. If you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. Now you would say to yourself, why would Jesus look at a crowd of people whom the scripture has said believed and say to them, now, now guys, here, here's the real deal. If you continue in my word, you're really my disciples. Almost as if to say that at that point they weren't his disciples. Now the scriptures say they believed, but we don't know what they believed in just says that they believed. How can we get a better understanding of this? We'll flip over to the book of Luke pretty quickly. If you remember in Luke 8, Jesus teaches on the parable of the sower. How many of you guys remember the story of the parable of the sower? The sower and the seed. You've heard it probably a hundred times in Sunday school. But he, he, he references this. He refers back to this as he talks about people that will say they believe, but they really don't. We know Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father which is in heaven. It's not about working for our salvation, but it is about the evidence of our salvation that proves that we're disciples. And so Jesus, when he teaches in Luke, he says this about the sower and his seed, that there was a sower sowing seed. And as he was sowing seed, uh, verse 5, one fell along the path that was trampled on, the birds of the sky ate it up. Other seed fell on the rock. When it sprang up, it withered since it lacked moisture. Other seed fell among thorns. The thorns sprang up with it and choked it. 
So the other seed fell on the good ground. When it sprang up, it produced a crop a hundred times what it was sown. And he said, and, and he said this, he called out, anyone who has ears, he should listen. Now, now the disciples said, Jesus, we don't understand that. Help us understand what you're trying to teach us with that parable. And this is what Jesus does. He, he explains it. Verse 11, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. The seeds along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So there's this first group where the seed goes out, the gospel goes out, and Satan comes down and immediately just begins to pluck it away so that people cannot believe. Now there's a second group he talks about, verse 13, and the seed on the rocks are those who, when they hear, welcome the word with joy, having no root, these believe for a while and depart in a time of testing. So, there, so there's this other group. That the scriptures say that, that it lands kind of on rocky soil. So, so it's really impossible for that soil to produce roots. So even though the seed is welcomed, over time it just gets blown away because there's no root. There's no establishing of the plant itself. So you've got a second group who said they believed but just went away. Now the third group, verse 14, as for the seed that fell among the thorns... These are the ones who, when they have heard, go on their way and are choked with worries, riches, and pleasures of life and produce no mature fruit. Now, many commentators say, and I would tend to agree with this, that even this crowd aren't people who are disciples of Jesus Christ. Because notice what it says. It's very distinct about what it says about the result of their life. is that they produce no mature fruit. Now, Jesus goes on and teaches somewhere else in the Sermon on the Mount that a tree is known by the fruit it bears. So we don't look at a tree that is full of apples and call it a peach tree, do we? It doesn't matter how much we want it to be a peach tree. It's not a peach tree. It's an apple tree. Why do we know it's an apple tree? So you can, you can tell I work with students, right? Because that, that's a simple question. Because it has apples on it. A tree is known by the fruit it bears. Jesus is saying that this, this third crowd, their life didn't produce the kind of fruit that would dictate that they were disciples of Jesus Christ. But he says there's a fourth crowd. Verse 15, but the seed on the good ground, these are the ones who having heard the word with an honest and good heart, hold on to it and by enduring bear fruit so that their life proves what they say they are. So Jesus knew as he looked at this crowd that he knew these Jews that had believed of course, his divinity allowed him to see more than we can see. But his, per his perception was that a lot of these people that are here probably don't really believe for the right reasons. But, but here's what's awesome is that Jesus is going to show us why that is true. He's going to begin picking apart their view of what it meant to be free. Notice the second thing that he does. He begins to reveal to us the path of the unrepentant. Watch what he does. After he said that, he looked at this crowd and said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, you would think that would be a very well-received message, right? I mean, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And as you're doing that, you're going to know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, for any of us who've been redeemed, who've been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is great news. Because what we want is we want to be free. Free from the worries and cares of this world. Free from all of those things that Christ saves us from. But I want you to notice how the unrepentant are, are going to respond to that. Notice what they did. Verse 33. 
We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Now, how did they respond? Did they respond with joy? Did they respond by receiving the message? Absolutely not. Notice what they said. They said, Jesus, how can you say that we're going to be free? We've never been enslaved. Now, any of us that knows basic Old Testament history can refute that statement, right? What did, what did this group of Jews all of a sudden forget about? Well, they forgot about Babylon, didn't they? Well, they forgot about Egypt, didn't they? They forgot about Assyria, didn't they? They forgot about King Darius and King Xerxes and King Artaxerxes. All of those times that they were enslaved and bondage. But see, for them, their pride wouldn't let them admit that they'd ever been enslaved. And they said, Jesus, we've, we've never been enslaved by anyone. So how can you say we can be free? What's amazing about that is when we look at that path, because here's what the Jews were basically saying. Our descendants, our father, we are descendants of Abraham. They'll go on to say, our father is Abraham. They were clinging on to something that they felt like earned them the right to heaven. You see, that's what we see today in our church that I'll call the, the good to great gospel. Some of you maybe have, have read Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. It's a great book. It's a great, it's a great business book. It's a great book on leadership. But I'm going to tell you something. It's a horrible gospel presentation. Because here's the problem. The problem with this philosophy in our life is that it starts with a premise that we're good. It starts with a premise that, that we deserve something. That we're really not that bad. We're really good people that need to just become better. And here's what I wonder. How many people have accepted a gospel that they felt like they were good and they just needed to become better? That's not the gospel. Look at the rich young ruler, Matthew 19, 16. This rich young ruler came to Jesus and he, he said, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what we find out about his life is that he was really a great guy. I mean, he had done all the right things. And here's what he was asking. Jesus, I've kept all the commandments and it's not enough. So what else do I have to do? You see, that's the gospel that we are preaching. What's, what's scary today is that we've created a gospel that is measured by our behavior and not the grace that the gospel provides. It's called behavior modification. And listen, so much of our student ministries today are based on behavior modification. Because here's what most parents want out of student ministries. That, that I'm going to give you my son or my daughter when they're in seventh grade. Now, here's the problem with that philosophy. Number one, you can't give your kids away. I, I, listen, I see the faces of seventh grade parents when I have a meeting with them, and it's like they're the, they're the happiest people. They're like, oh, thank you, Jesus, for youth group. Here, they're yours. The reality is, is that here's what most parents expect. That if you can give my son or my daughter back to me in six years, and they're not pregnant... They've not been in jail, and they're pretty decent people, and they're graduating from high school. You've done a good job. That's the basis of most of our student ministries. And so here's what we do. You want us to preach to your children behavior modification because you want us to make sure they do the right thing. 
When in essence, our job is not to do that. Our job is to make sure that they believe the right things. Because if they believe the right things, they're going to do the right things. Several years ago, really two years ago, at Lifeway, we began thinking a lot about True Love Weights. How many of you guys are familiar with True Love Weights? It's a great program. Richard Ross, Jimmy Hester started True Love Weights 20 years ago. There at Lifeway Cafeteria, sat down with a, with a, with a napkin and just began doodling. What, what could we do to help students make some type of profession to purity, some type of some commitment to purity? And I know these guys, I know these guys well, and they had sincere hearts, and it was all about Jesus for them. But here's what happened to True Love Weights. True Love Weights became behavior modification. True Love Weights became us pursuing the wrong thing. Because here's what happened. Over the years, over the years, we set up virginity as our idol instead of Jesus as our king. And see, here's what happens is you begin pursuing the wrong thing. Now, I'm not saying there's, listen, of course we want to encourage our students to be pure without question. But here's the problem. Pursuing purity without Jesus is a train wreck. We did a Two Real Boys documentary. If you've not seen it, you need to see it, Gary. It's unbelievable. The girl that actually became the spokesperson for True Love Weights, her name's Susan Bohannon, Susan Davidson at the time. I just got through serving on staff. Uh, I do interim student ministry work in churches uh, while, I'm with Nashville, while I'm with Lifeway. Just got through serving with the church, True Love Grove Baptist Church. It's where Richard Ross was on staff when True Love Weights was started. Susan Bohannon was one of my youth workers. Susan Bohannon was the female spokesperson for True Love Weights when it first started. So if you remember 20 years ago, the little girl that was on the Today Show, the little girl that was on Oprah, the little girl that was basically a spokesperson, that's Susan Bohannon. Well, when I, when I learned that as I was in the church serving, I was so excited about that because I thought, man, this is awesome. I mean, she was like spokesperson for True Love Weights. And every time I would mention True Love Weights, I would say, Susan, and every time I would mention it, her head would go down. Her head would go down, and I never understood that until we did our documentary. We sent a, a film crew out to, to film Susan, since she was such an integral part of the beginning of True Love Waits. Susan gave a great testimony of how it all started and how she was a spokesperson and all that she had said then. It was great. When our film crew left, and I've talked to our guys because they do some videos for us as well, they said to me, they said, Jeff, we knew there was more to the story. We just, we just knew that she wasn't finished. And so they called her and they said, Susan, listen, we feel like there's more you need to tell us. And she said, yeah, you guys need to come back out. So they go back out, set the cameras up, and they begin filming her. And I mean, guys, you can tell when, you can tell when this story takes a turn. It's unbelievable. And she begins telling the story of going to college and having to deal with the pressure of trying to be the true love waits girl. Everybody making fun of her, everybody pointing her out, everybody saying, oh, there's the, there's, there's the true love waste girl, there's the true love waste person. And here's what happened, is that she caved under the pressure because she, see, here's, here's, she wasn't pursuing Jesus, she was pursuing purity. And she was trying to make sure in her flesh and her own energy that she stayed as pure as she could. And guess what happened? She couldn't do it. And so she gave in. 
And she began having relationships there at college. And guys, listen, for 18 years, she'd never told that story until that moment for 18 years. For 18 years, she lived with the guilt of being a failure. Listen, while going to church every single Sunday. Here's why. Because behavior modification doesn't work. Because we're not good. You see, that's the fundamental problem. It, it, it goes back to how we feel about our kids. How many of us would say that our kids are innocent and need to be protected? Listen, before you answer that, understand that will determine your theology moving forward. Our kids are impressionable, but I'm going to tell you something. They're not innocent. Have you ever had a two-year-old? Listen, they are sinful from birth. We are all sinful from birth. And if we don't understand that, if we don't start there, the problem is, is that if we start with us being good, then we just need Jesus to make us better. And Jesus isn't in the business of making people better. He's in the business of making people new. And there's a big difference. These Jews felt like they, they were offended. What? We've never been enslaved. Are you kidding me? Our father's Abraham. We deserve what you're talking about. Jesus then begins to roll down and begins to dismantle basically their argument. Notice, notice what he says in the next verse. Verse 34. Jesus responded. Because remember what they said. They said there's no way that we could be enslaved. We've never been enslaved. Jesus says, I assure you. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So immediately what he does is he dismantles their argument. They said, we've never been enslaved. And Jesus says, let me tell you something. I assure you, you're a slave. Because if you've sinned, you're a slave. And let me tell you what I know about you. You have sinned. Here's why I know you've sinned. Because in Psalm 51... David confessed, he said, from my mother's womb, I was sinful. I'm sinful. And because of that, because of your sinfulness, you become enslaved because sin makes us a slave. I've heard people use the illustration like this when it comes to the gospel. They say that, and you may have heard this before. People say, you know, yes, man, I was lost, and I was, it's kind of like I was drifting out in the ocean with a life preserver, and I was just drifting, and I was just, well, I was just drifting in the ocean, didn't have anything, and I was just, I was swimming, and I was, I was forcing to keep my head above water, and here comes Jesus in the lifeboat. And Jesus comes into the lifeboat, and he throws me a life preserver, and he saves me. What's, what's the problem with that illustration? See, the problem with the illustration is that, guys, listen, we weren't alive in keeping our heads above water. Here's the reality. The reality of the gospel is this, is that we were on our bellies deader than 3 o'clock. If you want to use the illustration, we need to get it right from the gospel's perspective. We were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. If Jesus came in the boat, guys, we were floating. We were bobbing. And Jesus came and grabbed us and he put us in the lifeboat and he brought us back to life. That's the gospel. We have to be careful that our human effort doesn't get in the way of what the gospel really means. Notice what he says, because basically he breaks down the gospel here. He says that a slave can't remain in the house forever, but a son does remain forever. 
So he's telling them, guys, they were looking at the sun, and he, he was telling them the sun is going to remain forever because what's going to happen is that the sun is going to defeat sin, hell, death, and the grave. The sun is going to be the one that freedom comes from. And we just get the gospel messed up. We miss it. We miss it so many times. Just recently, I had the privilege of, of working on a curriculum called Explore the Bible. Have you guys in here ever used Explore the Bible? I don't work on the adult one, but I work on the student one. And was, and was writing through the book of Hebrews. So as I was writing the student curriculum that will launch this fall through the book of Hebrews, God began to really open my eyes to really what it meant that he died for our sins. The book of Hebrews, guys, is such an awesome book because it takes the Old Testament and what God set up in the Old Testament as a shadowing, a foreshadowing, was what was coming in the New Testament. And so the, so the book of Hebrews goes back and forth. It's going to be a great fallen Bible study. Back and forth of saying that, that, that here was the old sacrifice, here's the new sacrifice. Here's the old covenant, here's the new covenant. Here's what the old blood did, here's what the new... It's an amazing study. But through that study, here's what the Lord began to help me understand about really what it meant to become a Christian. Really what it meant to be free. If you read in Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10, it talks about Jesus and basically him becoming the perfect sacrifice, the perfect, the, the perfect priest. He, he was better than the old priest. He was better than the old sacrifice. Why? Because he didn't give the, the, the life of lambs and goats and bulls. He gave his life. And he gave his blood. And so if you know anything about Old Testament law, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would take the blood of a perfect sacrifice of that bull. And he would take that he would take that blood and he would take it into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle it on the altar once a year. And here's the problem, is that when the second year came around, guess what had to happen again? The priest had to do it again. Why? Because it wasn't the perfect sacrifice. It may cover the sins of the people, but it didn't take away the heart. It didn't change the heart. And so what Jesus did is the scriptures say that Jesus came in and he died for our sins on a cross. And he paid for our sins where the, the sacrifice of the bulls and the goats and what the priest did was yearly, Jesus said, I'm going to do it once and for all. And when I make my sacrifice, then I'm going to take my blood into the heavenly holy of holies and I'm going to bust through the gate and I'm going to set my blood down and I'm going to make the sacrifice for all of our sins. And then I'm going to sit at the right hand of my Father and I'm going to intercede for all of those who would claim my gift. That's the gospel. You see, here's what it means to be free. It's that we all realize that we did nothing, nothing to deserve to be saved. Nothing. It's like this. What's your name? Yeah. Come up here. I'm going to get you to help me for a second. Come here, Mercer football. You a football player? Good deal, buddy. Sit right there. What's your name? Jason. Jason. It's just like if Jason begins to hear the call of God in his life. And he begins to hear God drawing him. And, and God reaches down in his heart and he says, Jason, I want you to follow me. Jason, I want you to be my son. And Jason says, Jesus, yes. I want to do that. And so here's what Jesus does. Jesus then, because, listen, because he earned it, 
Jesus earned it. He takes his cloak of righteousness and he covers us with it. And here's what's amazing about that. Is that when Jason understands that, you know what he understands? He did nothing to deserve this. Nothing. He, he, didn't, he did nothing to earn this. He realizes this is God's unmerited favor in his life. Because you see, Jesus said about Jason, Jason, I loved you while you were still a sinner. When you were still a sinner, I died for you. I gave my life for you. So that one day when I began to call you and you're, and you're right there running around doing your own thing, you're being a bonehead and you're driving your big old pickup truck and, rum, 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 and you're picking up chicks. Hey, what's up? What's up? You're doing, and all of a sudden I begin calling you and you go, man, there's something different. Something's happening in my life. God's calling me. And God says, Jason, I want you. And Jason says, Yes. Jason, I'm going to clothe you with my righteousness. And I want you to know something. It's not yours. It's mine. So that when my father sees you, he doesn't see you. He sees me. And one day, Jason, you're going to die. And when you come through the pearly gates, this is what my father will see. Because you're mine. That's the gospel. And see, here's the great thing about it. When he understands that, he knows that there's nothing he can do to pay God back. There's nothing he can do to claim his own freedom. He knows this. He's free only by the blood of the Lamb. You can be seated, buddy. That's why Jesus goes on and he says this. That's the last thing he says. Therefore. You all know what a therefore is. Therefore, right? Therefore. If the Son sets you free, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. So here's a question for all of us this morning, this morning, this evening. Man, is, is that what we accepted? When we came to Christ, did we say, Jesus, there, there's nothing? I have nothing, I am nothing, and I need you. And did we receive his righteousness? And did we, and do we continue to live and remember that it is his righteousness and not ours? Listen, I would challenge you, church, in this. Never, ever, ever do anything again for Jesus because you feel obligated. Think about that. Because when we serve out of obligation, we're saying to Jesus that there's something we have to do. Your righteousness isn't enough. Now, do we have more responsibility to the gospel? You better believe we do. Do we have responsibility to serve? You better believe we do. But it doesn't come. Jesus said, I don't desire mercy. I, I don't desire your sacrifice. I don't need that. I did all of that for you. I just want you to understand how much I love you and I want you to understand how free you are. And it is in your freedom that you will understand the joy to serve, the joy to give, the joy to go, and the joy to share.
it's only in you understanding, us understanding that passage of scripture that we can do what we do in joy. Man, I, I, my prayer for you guys tonight, and there may be some of you who've never received the righteousness of Jesus Christ in your life, and I want to invite you tonight to make that decision, to accept his righteousness in your life. But my hunch is, is that most of us sitting here, most of us in this building have done that. We're just serving Jesus out of obligation because we think we owe him something. And I would just ask you guys to let go of that. Just let go of that and learn to serve Jesus out of joy. Because it is when we serve him out of joy that that pleases him. But it's when we begin to work and to pay him back that it is a slap in the face of the gospel. I invite you tonight, just be free. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, there's so much that we don't understand. But Lord, I, I pray that we would understand a very clear, simple presentation of what it means to be saved. Father, we didn't deserve it before. We didn't deserve it, Lord, when we received it. And Father, we don't deserve it now. It is just by you clothing us in your righteousness, Father, that we're made right. Lord, one day we'll all stand before you. And Lord, you will be there at the right hand of your Father, interceding for those who have responded to the gospel. Father, my prayer tonight is that those in this building, if there are some who've never responded to the gospel, Lord, let them come. Father, let them come and receive the free gift that you've paid for already for them. But Lord, there may be many here who are just weary, who are weary and tired of trying to be the good Christian, weary and tired of trying to fulfill the obligations of what it means to be a Christian. And Lord, please help us understand that you don't need our obligations. Lord, you've provided us freedom. Why, Lord, would we choose to put ourselves in prison when you freed us? Father, I pray that your joy would return to the hearts of your people. Lord, I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Gary, lead us in a hymn of invitation. I encourage you to stand. Listen, you may just want to pray where you are. You may want to come down here and pray. I'll be here. Your other pastor that's in town will be here. There may be another pastor. There's not many of you, right? I know that. <laughs> but listen, we'll be here. Love to pray with you. Love to share with you. Whatever God's doing in your life. Listen, don't think about this as an event. This is a life-changing opportunity for us. And we need to take advantage of it. Let's all stand together.